Well, I will forever be grateful for a man by the name of Larry Dotson. Larry was a, a man who was an engineer and still is an engineer by trade. He was asked one day by one of the pastors if he would meet with this young man who was an upperclassman in high school who had just recently come to faith in Jesus Christ. And would he meet with this young man to help him understand the basics, the fundamentals of walking in Christ? And he took that and ran with it. And he met with that young man for many years. Primarily, he would meet with that young man at his place of employment, which was a downtown Greyhound bus station. And he would show up and he would sit with this young man, sometimes up to three hours, explaining to him the Word of God. That young man was me. And I was blessed to have a man who was willing to invest his time to disciple me in the truths of Jesus Christ. He taught me about the importance of maturity in Christ. He modeled before me the walk of Christ and how to live in Christ's likeness in the midst of trying circumstances. As well, he exhorted me to go on and to proclaim what I had learned to others to multiply disciples. And God blessed me within a few years to have disciples of my own. To be able to have men that I was able to take the Word of God and to invest my life into their life as well. Teaching the Word of God magnifying maturity in Christ, modeling before them as best as I could Christ-likeness, and as well exhorting them to go and make disciples. And some 25 years later, I'm still doing it. And I owe much to Larry Dotson, who by faith and by courage in the Holy Spirit chose to invest his life not only to teach me the Word of God, but to share with me his very own life. And for that, I am eternally grateful. That sums up quite well the Great Commission. That as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have been called, commissioned, deputized, if you will, by the authority of Jesus Christ to go to all nations and make disciples, baptizing them and the triune God, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded, and it comes with a wonderful promise. Jesus will be with us always. The passage that we're going to look at this morning paints for us in vivid pictures. Jesus uses vivid language to paint for us a, a portrait, if you will, of a disciple-maker. And in this, we see three features that we'll take a look at in just a little bit. But before we jump into that, it's very important for us to understand the context leading up to this time where Jesus is speaking to the disciples. The context, we can go about as far back as chapter 7, verse 31. And I want to provide for you from chapter 7, 31 to chapter 9, verse 41, just some observations of that context. 
The first thing we see is that Jesus was traveling and teaching. Very common of Christ was to travel and teach. In this span, he and his disciples had traveled approximately 70 mi- 75 miles. That was about 25 hours of walking and talking. And that didn't include the times that they stopped and talked as well. In this time, Jesus revealed who he is. He was the wielder of all power in chapter 18, 17 through 21, where he feeds the 4,000. He was compassionate. He reveals himself as the compassionate and caring shepherd in that time who teaches and guides and provides for the needs of the people. Jesus is the Christ who will first die and, and then rise from the dead. In chapter 8, verse 31, is the first mentioning in this context. He said he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and then after three days he will rise again. He also revealed who the disciples are to be. In that same passage, he goes on to say in verse 32, and he said this plainly, which means everybody could understand it, including and especially Peter. Because then Peter took him aside. Now, we don't have the time to unpack that whole situation, but that had to be quite a situation. Peter took Christ aside and rebuked him. But turning and seeing the disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And what was the rebuke? He says, get behind me, Satan. Now why? Well, because of this. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is an important principle as we approach verse 42 to recognize that a disciple's mind, if you will, is not so much in this kingdom as it is in the kingdom of God. Our priority as a disciple of Jesus Christ is not the things of this world, but it is truly the things of God. The kingdom of God. That is what a disciple of Jesus Christ is about. A disciple must value Christ above everything. Verse 34, And he called to him the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The requirement for discipleship, the cost of discipleship, is our very own lives. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. And during this time, Jesus used some Q&A moments. Verse 27, chapter 8, who do people say that I am? But more importantly, in verse 29, who do you say that I am? Very important question. Because when we understand truly who Jesus is, discipleship then becomes much easier. Because when you understand how great Jesus is, when you understand the authority of Jesus, when you understand the glory of Jesus, when we understand the majesty of Jesus, when we understand the perfection of Jesus and the compassionate and the care of Jesus, we want to make him known. See, I want all of you to know my wife. And some of you are very blessed to have known her. And to know her still. And I love for everybody to meet my wife because I love my wife, and my wife has incredible characteristics, and because of that, I want people to meet her, and I'm excited that when I'm in crowds to be able to say, this is my wife, this is my wife, this is my wife. My stock goes up, see. This is my wife. 
And so we apply this principle all the time. That when there's something of value to us, we want other people to know about it. And, and, and so when we understand that question, who do you say that I am? And we understand who Christ is, discipleship becomes quite easy. Because we simply want somebody to know Jesus. He goes on, there's the transfiguration in verse 11. He continues to talk about the fact that he will suffer in uh, chapter 9, verse 12. Verse 33, he asks what the disciples were discussing. He begins then to teach them about true greatness, which is humility. Humility, pride, the opposite of humility. Pride is an incredible hindrance to discipleship. When, when we consider ourselves as more important than the lives of others, when we consider ourselves as more important than Jesus Christ, then that stifles immediately discipleship. For the call of a disciple is to deny self and follow Jesus. To value Him more than anything else. Jesus also uses life experiences. There's um, the healing in, in chapter 7, verse 31 of the deaf man. And then chapter 8, verse 22, there's the healing of the blind man. And it seems as if Mark, with his, uh, the juxtaposition of these healings, and right in between that is him talking about the disciples understanding who Jesus is. There's an opening of the ears. There's an opening of the eyes that he refers to. In other words, it is very important that our ears be open and our eyes be open that we might see truly who he is and most importantly, how valuable he is and how valuable he should be to us. So with that as well, as we have Jesus walking and teaching, there's also, we also see the dullness of the disciples, again, calling for them to hear and to see and to understand, and they wouldn't completely be able to put all the pieces of the puzzle together until Jesus had risen from the grave. We see Jesus consistently compassionate for others, especially souls, and again, this is important because the value that Jesus is placing is much more on the souls of people, the spiritual component of people, rather than that which is physical. And that will be a continual value that we have to continue to have if we are to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, whereby we value not only the spiritual kingdom above the physical, but as well, we value the spiritual of a person rather than the physical. He wanted them again to value Him more than anything else. And then as well, we, we have the cost of discipleship that He addresses in 834, to put off worldly things for heavenly things, to put off an allegiance to self for an allegiance to Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon that he gave on discipleship, says this, Christ's disciple must so love his Lord that in comparison with the love he bears to Christ, all other love shall burn but dimly and be scarcely worthy of even being named. So the disciple of Jesus Christ values Christ above all things. To deny oneself, it means that we disown or we renounce self 
We crush all works and interests and enjoyments. We value Christ above our self-interest. We value Christ above our relationships. We value Christ even above our own very life. To passionately follow Christ means that we embrace not merely a relationship of being, but also of doing. Spurgeon goes on to say, Christian men and women... The Lord Jesus Christ does not want to have any followers who never foil or fight for Him. He does not wish to have with Him shepherds who never feed His flock, merely nominal Christians who never do anything for Him. We've been commissioned. Every disciple has been commissioned, called, and sufficiently supplied with all that he or she needs to make disciples. And in particular, We make disciples who make disciples. That is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Pastor Joe did a wonderful job of leading us through that passage a few weeks ago and emphasized the authority of Jesus Christ to give such a command. The particulars of that command, practically, what does it mean to teach all that God has commanded? He he says to go to the nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Therein is the ongoing and perpetual nature of discipleship. That the call to one who is not a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a disciple And then the call to a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a disciple maker. The activity of teaching, it means to influence one's thinking and behavior by word of mouth. And we boil it down. That is what it means to teach. It means that we want to influence others to think differently, to desire different things, and to have a different lifestyle, and we do so by word of mouth. The purpose is for others to observe, to obey, to fulfill, to practice, and to accomplish all that Jesus has commanded you. The content is, what has Jesus commanded you? That's that's the simplicity of discipleship. So you don't have to make anything up. You know, the beauty of, of preaching or teaching, is that the content has already been given. We, we don't have to go make anything up. We don't have to go and, and, and research and find things to talk about. Discipleship is simple. Whatever Christ has commanded you, you teach others to do the same. How do we know what Christ has commanded us? It, it's all in His Word. See, content is not necessarily a prescribed curriculum, but it is the whole counsel of God's Word. Well, I want a disciple. Where do I start? The Word. What has Jesus commanded you? Share with others what He has commanded you. Does this apply to you? Yes. Then share with others what applies to you. It applies to them as well. This is what discipleship is. The content's been provided. The commissioning has been given. And Jesus is with us always. See, if there's one thing we are, that is we are creative in complicating situations. We're we're quite capable 
of complicating something that has been made simple. And Jesus has made it that simple for us. See, this is what I would call the disciple-making loop. Uh, We make disciples who then make disciples, who then make disciples, who then make disciples. Why? Well, think of this. Jesus said, teach everyone to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, let us not forget there's a command in that actual passage, right? Go make disciples. So at minimum, what we should be teaching others is to go make disciples. At minimum, that's what we teach one another, to go and make disciples. We lose this organic, fundamental ministry in our midst when we're lulled into depending on programs and leadership. We gravitate toward a bifurcation of clergy and laity, professional and novice. This is simply not biblical. Consider Matthew 9, 36 and following. When he... When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In other words, the demand will always be high. The issue is never about demand. There will always be people to disciple. You never have to worry about running out of people to disciple. There will always be someone to disciple. And Jesus' method here is disciples who multiply themselves. He says, He called to Him His twelve disciples. He gave them authority. See, Jesus' method is disciples who multiply to compassionately care for, grow, and then perpetuate His kingdom. And what does all nations include? Well, most certainly it includes all people in the world, which also includes the people in our homes the people in our neighborhoods, the people in the stores and in the gyms and on sports teams and community groups. It includes the people in our small groups. It includes the people in our Bible studies and Sunday school classes. So, we can boil it down to this. If you have a pulse and you have the Holy Spirit, meaning you're a disciple of Christ who is alive, then you have been commissioned by the authority of Christ to make disciples. You teach people the Word. You teach them to go on and share what they have learned with others making more disciples. Paul always made discipleship so clear. He would say, that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that we proclaim to you. If you've heard it, if you've seen it, go and proclaim it. There's always a sense that when we come and listen to the Word be preached, when we come and listen to the Word be taught, when we read the Word of God for ourselves, that we're not only thinking about the fact that I want to know God, but that I want to practice what it is that He is asking of me to do, that my life might be more like Jesus Christ, and as well, I want to know how to proclaim this, teach this, share this with another person. And when we recognize and we are convicted that we have a responsibility to make disciples, and we have a responsibility to take what we have heard and what we have seen and to proclaim that to others, we will approach our study of Scripture much differently. 
When a professor tells you to go read a book, you respond one way. But when a professor tells you, go read a book, and in two weeks, I need you to provide for me a 30-minute presentation on the main arguments of the book and an overall summary of what the author is saying. Now you're going to read way different. Our entire study of God's Word will radically change when we recognize that we are indeed responsible to share and proclaim that which we hear and that which we see to others. Because we want to see the life of Christ in the lives of other people. And so when we come then to verse 42 through 50 in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus continues His teaching about what disciples should be. As disciples, we were going to face much resistance. Our nature is to serve self. And yet, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and to value Him more than anything else. And that means what is valuable to Him then becomes valuable to us. Again, we're going to face many temptations to value ourselves more. And this will be our greatest hindrance to making disciples. In these verses, Jesus provides for us vivid images that paint the portrait of a disciple-maker. And what he's been teaching and what he continues to teach here all speak to the tremendous demands of discipleship. After teaching on humility and harmony in the verses prior, which is the backbone of discipleship, Jesus goes on to give us three features that portray a disciple-maker in order for us to think and to behave rightly in our disciple-making ministries. Now, Jesus, the imagery that Jesus uses here is striking. Large millstone around one's neck thrown into the sea. Hands, legs, eyes being cut off and plucked out. Hell is a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I mean, it reads like the commentary of an upcoming horror film. Now, let me give you the three features and then we'll take a look at each one of them. The portrait of a disciple maker is that he or she is devoted to at least these three things. Maturity in Christ, modeling Christ-likeness, and multiplying Christ's followers. So the first feature is that a disciple maker is devoted to maturity in Christ. The vivid pictures in verses 42 through 48 portray a disciple who is one who is devoted to maturity in Christ, both in the lives of others and in his self. Look with me at verse 42. He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The point he's making is that we care about others' maturity in Christ. We, we live in such a way that we care about others' relationship to Jesus. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Little ones picks up on those he's, who he's talked about earlier that need to be welcomed warm, warmly and the humility that we welcome them. And he says that whoever causes these new believers is what he's referring to or spiritually immature believers to sin, it would be better for them if a great millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. And the, and the word for sin is a Greek word where we get the word scandal or scandalize. It means to cause to be brought to a downfall. It means to cause to sin or to entice to sin. 
And Jesus is saying there's no price too high to avoid this. Hence the relentless demand of Jesus here, it would be better for him. These phrases, it would be better, are there to emphasize value. See, we're valuing Christ above all things. We're valuing the priorities of Christ. We're valuing the teachings of Christ. We're valuing the person of Christ. We're valuing His purposes for others and for His kingdom. We value all of which is Christ more than anything else. And so that we would rather lose our lives than to cause someone else to sin. We would rather lose our lives. That's denying self. That's taking up the cross. And a millstone, I don't think I need to explain, was a pretty big stone. Now, some might say that this promotes blame shifting. They caused me to sin. They made me do it. Now, that is the oldest excuse in all of time, right? Adam and Eve used it, and each one of them was responsible for what they did. If they sinned, they were responsible for the sin. But if they enticed someone to sin, they were responsible for enticing someone to sin. The disciple then must be concerned for the spiritual growth of others, especially young believers This means we must be careful how we live and how we counsel others. We want to make certain that what we are saying to another is tied down to Scripture and that it is accurate. And so instead of causing others to sin, we want to live to spur others toward good deeds. By our speech, by our attitude, by our behavior, we want to make it easy for others to be Christ-like. How many times do we make it so easy for somebody to sin with our exasperating words? We want to encourage people to do the right thing. We're responsible for each other. And we should consider, ponder, think about, and brainstorm ways that we can stir someone to love and good works. And so also, let us then build each other up. Do our actions, our attitude, speech, encourage spiritual growth in the lives of others? Are are there any behaviors, attitudes, or words that may be causing others to stumble? In other words, is there something that we do or say that entices people to sin rather than do good? What a wonderful question to ask those around us. Is there a particular attitude? Is there a particular speech? Is there a particular lifestyle or activity that I do that entices you to sin rather than spur you on to a good deed? Closely connected to attending to the spiritual growth of others is also then we care for our own maturity in Christ. And and that's what Jesus is talking about in verses 43 through 48. If your own body, the things that you do, your hands or where you go, your feet, and what you long for, your eyes, if any of those things cause you to sin, then we are to deal with it severely. As disciples of Christ, we must take sin serious the imagery here is strong it's it's severe and as i said earlier it's even horrific cut off your hand cut off your foot pluck out your eye now again please understand this is not to be taken literally now jesus literally said it 
but it is a figure of speech. And the whole point behind it is that we take sin serious and we deal with it with incredible severity and completeness. That we are decisive about removing something from us that may be cause for sin in our life. Because we care so much for our maturing in Jesus Christ. We value and we show what we value by our willingness to eliminate certain things. Because I value, and it'll be no surprise to most, I value good coffee. That means I eliminate styrofoam cups from my house. I never want and never want to make provision for such an awful sin. We show what we value by what we are willing to eliminate. And if there are particular ways of desire or thinking or speech or behavior or places we go that entice us to sin, make it easier to sin, make a provision for sin, then we show that we value maturity in Christ by our willingness to eliminate it. That's the point that Jesus is making. In addition, he says, we must also take hell serious. It'd be better if someone should be crippled, lame, or blind than to experience hell. Once again, it's a value statement. A value over the soul and the spirit and the kingdom of God rather than that which is merely physical. It would be better to experience the discomfort physically than to be destroyed eternally. And this is a warning, not only for the believer, but it's a warning for the non-believer in particular. If you're not a follower of Christ, the reason why we preach so strongly the Gospel of Jesus Christ is because we recognize it truly is a life and death situation. And for those of you who are disciples of Jesus Christ, it means that the message you preach and the message at times you might be unwilling to preach is an issue of life and death for those to whom you would preach it. Jesus says we need to value the soul. We need to value that which is spiritual, the kingdom of God, above that which is merely physical. J.C. Ryle comments on the misery of eternal punishment. He says, who shall describe the misery of eternal punishment? It is something utterly indescribable and inconceivable. Let us close these verses, he says, with serious self-inquiry. Let us ask ourselves on which side of Christ we are likely to be that last day. Shall we be on the right hand or shall we be on the left? Happy is he who never rests Till he can give a satisfactory answer to this question. Therefore, we must place a premium on our spiritual lives, on the condition of our souls, and the condition of the souls around us. So we must cut off harmful practices. We have to value holiness more important than anything else. Do not miss one phrase that Jesus uses in these verses he uses this one phrase four times in these verses. The phrase is, it is better. It is better. 
It is better. It is better. This is to emphasize the superior position attending to one's spiritual life one's soul has in comparison to anything else. It is better. It is better. It is better. It is better, Jesus says. And so we devote ourselves to maturity in Christ, both in the lives of others and in our own. A disciple-maker is devoted to maturity in Christ. Second feature is that a disciple-maker is devoted to modeling Christ-likeness. Look at verse 49. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. In other words, we will all face resistance to mature in Christ. It's a given for everyone. We must give attention to then how we respond to trials. Scripture makes it clear that everyone will face trials. Our flesh, the world, the devil, all wage resistance against our new disposition in Christ to pursue Christ-likeness. Trial and temptation will come on a daily basis, and how we respond will determine the direction of our growth and witness to others. And this is by God's design and plan. God uses trials in our lives to purify us. He says He will salt you with fire. Every sacrifice that was offered to God was to be sprinkled with salt. It made the sacrifice morally worthy. Consequently, Metaphorically, every disciple of Christ shall be tried or perfected by trial so as to become acceptable in the sight of God, just as every offering was prepared by the sprinkling of salt. You will be morally worthy by your trials. He says that then we prioritize our Christ-like response to our trial above its removal. We value our response to trial more than the removal of the trial. See, Paul highlights this feature in his own discipleship. See, we model Christ-likeness in our response to our own circumstances. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11-16, through 16, I'm going to summarize it. Let me summarize it under three questions. One, what were his circumstances? What was his response? And then what was his exhortation to the church? Well, here are his circumstances as he describes them. Hunger and thirst. So he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's poorly dressed, he's homeless, he's laboring, he's reviled, he's persecuted, slandered, scum of the world, and refuse of all things. It's an attractive resume, is it not? How did he respond? He blessed others. He endured. He entreated. And he prayed. What then is his exhortation to the church? I urge you then, he says, be imitators of me. To imitate is synonymous to the word that is used for disciple. A disciple of one another implies imitating one another. And therefore we model Christ's likeness which is worthy of imitation and what most drives a disciple-maker. 
We disciple so that people will imitate Christ. Even when we're discipling each other through our struggles, our focus is not so much on solving one another's problems as much as it is about pointing people to a person to follow. That is Jesus Christ. That's our purpose as a disciple, a disciple-maker. As Paul later says, Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we are devoted to maturity in Christ. We are devoted to modeling Christ's likeness. And the third feature that paints for us the portrait of a disciple maker is that we are devoted to multiplying Christ's followers. Once again, there's this image of salt to paint the picture of a disciple. We attend to our influence on the world. Jesus says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In other words, our presence ought to make a difference. Among the various uses for salt in the ancient world, the most prominent or as a preservative, or cleansing agent, or as flavoring. In either case, it symbolizes the beneficial influence that a disciple should have on society. When it comes to our relationship to the world, I categorize the fact that we have three options, at least three options. This is not a comprehensive, exhaustive list, but we have at least three options in our response to the world as disciples of Christ. One, we can be a missionary. Two, we can be a mission field. Or three, we can be a monk. What I mean by that is this. We can be a missionary whereby we are indeed influencing other people for the sake of Christ. We're influencing people with the words of Christ, with the teachings of Christ, with the lifestyle of Christ. We can be a mission field in that we are actually more influenced by the world and we're desiring the things of the world, we're speaking like people of the world, we're acting like the people of the world, or we can be a monk in that we don't want to deal with any of the resistance, we don't want to deal with any of the temptation, and we're merely going to escape and completely have no relationship with anybody else. Newsflash, very difficult to be a disciple maker if you do not have relationship with people to make disciples. So, it should not surprise any of us that Jesus would have us be, indeed, missionaries. That we would influence the world around us. He's called us to be missionaries, to be the salt, to multiply the Christ-like influence of disciples who make disciples who make disciples, ever increasing the influence of Christ's kingdom. Imagine, if you will, if only half in this room made one disciple this year. And that disciple made one disciple next year. And that disciple made another disciple the following year. You get the picture. It's very effective. That was Jesus' design. That people would relate to other people. That people would speak to other people. Words. That people would proclaim to other people the truths of God. That people would proclaim to other people an exhortation to go and proclaim to other people. That is the simplicity of discipleship. 
That is the simplicity of disciple making. There are people all around you. You will never, ever, ever, ever run out of people to disciple. And you can do it till your dying day. And I will tell you, it is the most precious and privileged thing to do during our time here on earth to make disciples who make disciples. This is our unified effort. We do this unified and at peace with one another. So that, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The images that Jesus uses, they substantiate and they affirm what He's been teaching the disciples, namely, to value more Jesus' spiritual kingdom than the mere physical kingdom, to value the souls of others and ultimately value Christ above anything else. He makes disciples because we value Christ. We want all to know Him. We want all to proclaim Him. We're devoted to maturity in Christ. We're devoted to modeling Christ's likeness. And we are devoted to multiplying Christ's followers. This is the Great Commission. And as Christ's church, we are committed to this. That means that we want all disciples of Christ to embark on a lifestyle of making disciples. And we have many opportunities for you to do that in our midst. But I just want to highlight a couple. One are our small groups. We have a new series coming out on heaven. There's going to be a sermon study guide that comes along with that. There's an opportunity for you to get into small groups. And you can check that out at yourchurch.com forward slash small groups. It's a great place if you're not already in a small group to find Christian community. And it's a great place to make disciples as well and to be a disciple. But another thing is that we want to elevate the role of one-on-one discipleship. And one way of doing that is we have created for you a disciple-maker's guide we won't do it for you. We cannot make disciples for you by proxy. But we have provided for you resources and equipping and training to help you do the works of the ministry, indeed making disciples. And this card is in your bulletin. If you have a bulletin, if you did not get a bulletin, These cards are available to you on the kiosks outside those doors. How great it would be to see the fellowship of believers at College Park Church engaged and involved in discipling one another who are making disciples of one another who are making disciples of one another. May we strive for that disciple-making loop of the Great Commission. On this page where this download is available, we also have a a section there of a list of other resources that could be used in your disciple-making ministry. There's also a section there for you to ask questions. And as well, there's a section on there for you to share your disciple-making story. We'd love to see how God is using you, has used you, and used people in your life, and how God has used you in the lives of others. As I close in prayer, 
There will be some folks up here afterward who'd love to pray with you. If you have questions about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you just recognize that you need to do something a little different than you've been doing, or you just have a need you would love for somebody to be praying for, then take advantage of the folks that are going to be up here. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to You for this ministry, how powerful it is to see Your Spirit work in the life of another. How powerful it is to see Your Word proceed from the mouth of one of Your disciples and watch it wield with great effect the transformed life of another. We thank You for the privilege of participating with You in this ministry of making disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.